Chapter six of G. K. Chesterton's Charles Dickens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. G. K. Chesterton's Charles Dickens. Chapter six. Dickens and America. The essential of Dickens's character was the conjunction of common sense with uncommon sensibility. The two things are not, indeed, in such an antithesis as is commonly imagined. Great English literary authorities, such as Jane Austen and Mr. Chamberlain, have put the word sense and the word sensibility in a kind of opposition to each other. But not only are they not opposite words, they are actually the same word. They both mean receptiveness or approachability by the facts outside us. To have a sense of colour is the same as to have a sensibility to colour. A person who realises that beefsteaks are appetising shows his sensibility. A person who realises that moonrise is romantic shows his sense. But it is not difficult to see the meaning and need of the popular distinction between sensibility and sense, particularly in the form called common sense. Common sense is a sensibility duly distributed in all normal directions. Sensibility has come to mean a specialised sensibility in one. This is unfortunate for it is not the sensibility that is bad, but the specialising, that is, the lack of sensibility to everything else. A young lady who stays out all night to look at the stars should not be blamed for her sensibility to starlight, but for her insensibility to other people. A poet who recites his own verses from ten to five with the tears rolling down his face should decidedly be rebuked for his lack of sensibility. His lack of sensibility to those grand rhythms of the social harmony crudely called manners. For all politeness is a long poem, since it is full of recurrences. This balance of all the sensibilities we call sense, and it is in this capacity that it becomes of great importance as an attribute of the character of Dickens. Dickens, I repeat, had common sense and uncommon sensibility. That is to say, the proportion of interests in him was about the same as that of an ordinary man, but he felt all of them more excitedly. This is a distinction not easy for us to keep in mind, because we hear today chiefly of two types, the dull man who likes ordinary things mildly, and the extraordinary man who likes extraordinary things wildly. But Dickens liked quiet ordinary things. He merely made an extraordinary fuss about them. His excitement was sometimes like an epileptic fit, but it must not be confused with the fury of the man of one idea, or one line of ideas. He had the excess of the eccentric, but not the defects, the narrowness. Even when he raved like a maniac, he did not rave like a monomaniac. He had no particular spot of sensibility or spot of insensibility. He was merely a normal man minus a normal self-command. He had no special point of mental pain or repugnance, like Ruskin's horror of steam and iron, or Mr. Bernard Shaw's permanent irritation against romantic love. He was annoyed at the ordinary annoyances. Only he was more annoyed than was necessary. He did not desire strange delights, blue wine or black women with Baudelaire, or cruel sights east of Suez with Mr. Kipling. He wanted what a healthy man wants, only he was ill with wanting it. To understand him in a word, we must keep well in mind the medical distinction between delicacy and disease. 
Perhaps we shall comprehend it and him more clearly if we think of a woman rather than a man. There was much that was feminine about Dickens, and nothing more so than this abnormal normality. A woman is often, in comparison with a man, at once more sensitive and more sane. This distinction must be especially remembered in all his quarrels, and it must be most especially remembered in what may be called his great quarrel with America, which we have now to approach. The whole incident is so typical of Dickens's attitude to everything and anything, and especially of Dickens's attitude to anything political, that I may ask permission to approach the matter by another, a somewhat long and curving avenue. Common sense is a fairy thread, thin and faint, and as easily lost as gossamer. Dickens, in large matters, never lost it. Take, as an example, his political tone, or drift throughout his life. His views, of course, may have been right or wrong. The reforms he supported may have been successful or otherwise. That is not a matter for this book. But if we compare him with the other man that wanted the same things, or the other man that wanted the other things, we feel a startling absence of cant, a startling sense of humanity as it is, and of eternal weakness. He was a fierce democrat, but in his best vein he laughed at the cocksure radical of common life, the red-faced man who said, Prove it! when anybody said anything. He fought for the right to elect, but he would not whitewash elections. He believed in parliamentary government, but he did not, like our contemporary newspapers, pretend that parliament is something much more heroic and imposing than it is. He fought for the rights of the grossly oppressed nonconformists, but he spat out of his mouth the unction of that too easy seriousness with which they oiled everything, and held up to them like a horrible mirror the foul fat face of Chatband. He saw that Mr. Potsnap thought too little of places outside England, but he saw that Mrs. Jellyby thought too much of them. In the last book he wrote, he gives us, in Mr. Honeythunder, a hateful and wholesome picture of all the liberal catchwords pouring out of one illiberal man. But perhaps the best evidence of this steadiness and sanity is the fact that, dogmatic as he was, he never tied himself to any passing dogma. He never got into any cul-de-sac or civic or economic fanaticism. He went down the broad road of the revolution. He never admitted that economically we must make hells of workhouses, any more than Rousseau would have admitted it. He never said the state had no right to teach children or to save their bones any more than Danton would have said it. He was a fierce radical, but he was never a Manchester radical. He used the test of utility, but he was never a utilitarian. While economists were writing soft words, he wrote hard times, which Macaulay called sullen socialism, because it was not complacent Wiggenson. But Dickens was never a socialist any more than he was an individualist, and, whatever else he was, he certainly was not sullen. He was not even a politician of any kind. He was simply a man of very clear, airy judgment on things that did not inflame his private temper, and he perceived that any theory that tried to run the living state entirely on one force and motive was probably nonsense. Whenever the liberal philosophy had embedded in it something hard and heavy and lifeless, by an instinct he dropped it out. He was too romantic, perhaps, but he would have to do only with real things. He may have cared too much about liberty, but he cared nothing about laissez-faire. Now, among many interests of his contact with America, this interest emerges as infinitely the largest and most striking, 
that it gave a final example of this queer, unexpected coolness and candor of his, this abrupt and sensational rationality. Apart altogether from any question of the accuracy of his picture of America, the American indignation was particularly natural and inevitable, for the large circumstances of the age must be taken into account. At the end of the previous epoch the whole of our Christian civilization had been startled from its sleep by trumpets to take sides in a bewildering Armageddon, often with eyes still misty. Germany and Austria found themselves on the side of the old order, France and America on the side of the new. England, as at the Reformation, took up eventually a dark middle position, maddeningly difficult to define. She created a democracy, but she kept an aristocracy. She reformed the House of Commons, but left the magistracy, as it is still, a mere league of gentlemen against the world. But underneath all this doubt and compromise there was in England a great and perhaps growing mass of dogmatic democracy. Certainly thousands, probably millions, expected a republic in fifty years. And for these the first instinct was obvious. The first instinct was to look across the Atlantic to where lay a part of ourselves already republican, the van of the advancing English on the road to liberty. Nearly all the great liberals of the nineteenth century enormously idealized America. On the other hand, to the Americans, fresh from their first epoch of arms, the defeated mother country, with its coronets and county magistrates, was only a broken feudal keep. So much is self-evident. But nearly halfway through the nineteenth century there came out of England the voice of a violent satirist. In its political quality it seemed like the half-choked cry of the frustrated republic. It had no patience with the pretense that England was already free, that we had gained all that was valuable from the revolution. It poured a cataract of contempt on the so-called working compromises of England, on the oligarchic cabinets, on the two artificial parties, on the government offices, on the J.P.s, on the vestries, on the voluntary charities. This satirist was Dickens, and it must be remembered that he was not only fierce, but uproariously readable. He really damaged the things he struck at, a very rare thing. He stepped up to the grave official of the vestry, really trusted by the rulers, really feared like a god by the poor, and he tied round his neck a name that choked him. Never again now can he be anything but Bumble. He confronted the fine old English gentleman who gives his patriotic services for nothing as a local magistrate, and he nailed him up as Nupkins, an owl in open day. For to this satire there is literally no answer. It cannot be denied that a man like Nupkins can be, and is, a magistrate, so long as we adopt the amazing method of letting the rich man of a district actually be the judge in it. We can only avoid the vision of the fact by shutting our eyes, and imagining the nicest rich man we can think of, and that, of course, is what we do. But Dickens, in this matter, was merely realistic. He merely asked us to look on Nupkins, on the wild, strange thing that we had made. Thus Dickens seemed to see England not at all as the country where freedom slowly broadened down from precedent to precedent, but as a rubbish heap of seventeenth-century bad habits abandoned by everybody else. That is, he looked at England almost with the eyes of an American Democrat. And so, when the voice, swelling in volume, reached America and the Americans, the Americans said, here is a man who will hurry the old country along and tip her kings and beetles into the sea. 
Let him come here, and we will show him a race of free men such as he dreams of, alive upon the ancient earth. Let him come here, and tell the English of the divine democracy to watch which he drives them. There he has a monarchy and an oligarchy to make game of. Here is a republic for him to praise." It seemed, indeed, a very natural sequel that, having denounced undemocratic England as the wilderness, he should announce democratic America as the promised land. Any ordinary person would have prophesied that, as he had pushed his rage at the old order almost to the edge of rant, he would push his encomium of the new order almost to the edge of cant. Amid a roar of republican idealism, compliments, hope, and anticipatory gratitude, the great democrat entered the great democracy. He looked about him. He saw a complete America, unquestionably progressive, unquestionably self-governing. Then, with a more than American coolness, and a more than American impudence, he sat down and wrote Martin Chuzzlewit. That tricky and perverse sanity of his had mutinied again. Common sense is a wild thing, savage and beyond rules, and it had turned on them and rent them. The main cause of action was as follows, and it is right to record it before we speak of the justice of it. When I speak of his sitting down and writing Martin Chuzzlewit, I use, of course, an elliptical expression. He wrote the notes of the American part of Martin Chuzzlewit while he was still in America. But it was a later decision, presumably, that such impressions should go into a book, and it was little better than an afterthought that they should go into Martin Chuzzlewit. Dickens had an uncommonly bad habit, artistically speaking, of altering a story in the middle, as he did in the case of our mutual friend. And it is on record that he only sent young Martin to America because he did not know what else to do with him, and because, to say truth, the sales were falling off. But the first action which Americans regarded as an equally hostile one was the publication of American Notes, the history of which should first be given. His notion of visiting America had come to him as a very vague notion, even before the appearance of the old curiosity shop. But it had grown in him, through the whole ensuing period, in the plaguing and persistent way that ideas did grow in him, and live with him. He contended against the idea in a certain manner. He had much to induce him to contend against it. Dickens was by this time not only a husband, but a father, the father of several children, and their existence made a difficulty in itself. His wife, he said, cried whenever the project was mentioned. But it was appointed him that he could never, with any satisfaction, part with a project. He had that restless optimism, that kind of nervous optimism, which would always tend to say, yes, which is stricken with an immortal repentance, if ever it says no. The idea of seeing America might be doubtful, but the idea of not seeing America was dreadful. To miss this opportunity would be a sad thing, he says. God willing, I think it must be managed somehow. It was managed somehow. First of all, he wanted to take his children, as well as his wife. Final obstacles to this fell upon him, but they did not frustrate him. A serious illness fell on him, but that did not frustrate him. He sailed for America in 1842. He landed in America, and he liked it. As John Forster very truly says, it is due to him as well as to the great country that welcomed him, that his first good impression should be recorded, and that it should be, considered independently of any modification it afterwards underwent. 
but the modification it afterwards underwent was, as I have said above, simply a sudden kicking against Kant, that is, against repetition. He was quite ready to believe that all Americans were free men. He would have believed it if they had not all told him so. He was quite prepared to be pleased with America. He would have been pleased with it if it had not been so much pleased with itself. The modification his views underwent did not arise from any modification of America as he first saw it. His admiration did not change because America changed. It changed because America did not change. The Yankees enraged him at last, not by saying different things, but by saying the same things. They were a republic. They were a new and vigorous nation. It seemed natural that they should say so to a famous foreigner first stepping onto their shore. But it seemed maddening that they should say so to each other in every car and drinking saloon from morning till night. It was not that the Americans in any way ceased from praising him. It was rather that they went on praising him. It was not merely that their praises of him sounded beautiful when he first heard them. Their praises of themselves sounded beautiful when he first heard them. That democracy was grand, and that Charles Dickens was a remarkable person, were two truths that he certainly never doubted to his dying day. But, as I say, it was a soulless repetition that stung his sense of humour out of sleep. It woke like a wild beast for hunting, the lion of his laughter. He had heard the truth once too often. He had heard the truth for the nine hundred and ninety-ninth time, and he suddenly saw that it was falsehood. It is true that a particular circumstance sharpened and defined his disappointment. He felt very hotly, as he felt everything, whether selfish or unselfish, the injustice of the American piracies of English literature, resulting from the American copyright laws. He did not go to America with any idea of discussing this. When, some time afterwards, somebody said that he did, he violently rejected the view as only describable, quote, in one of the shortest words in the English language. But his entry into America was almost triumphal. The rostrum or pulpit was ready for him. He felt strong enough to say anything. He had been most warmly entertained by many American men of letters, especially by Washington Irving, and in his consequent glow of confidence he stepped up to the dangerous question of American copyright. He made many speeches attacking the American law and theory of the matter as unjust to English writers and to American readers. The effect appears to have astounded him. I believe there is no country, he writes, on the face of the earth where there is less freedom of opinion on any subject in reference to which there is a broad difference of opinion than in this. There, I write the words with reluctance, disappointment and sorrow, but I believe it from the bottom of my soul. The notion that I, a man alone by myself in America, should venture to suggest to the Americans that there was one point on which they were neither just to their own countrymen nor to us, actually struck the boldest dumb. Washington Irving, Prescott, Hoffman, Bryant, Halleck, Dana, Washington Alston, every man who writes in this country is devoted to the question, and not one of them dares to raise his voice and complain of the atrocious state of the law. The wonder is that the breeding man can be found with temerity enough to suggest to the Americans the possibility of their having done wrong. I wish you could have seen the faces that I saw down both sides of the table at Hartford when I began to talk about Scott. I wish you could have heard how I gave it out. 
my blood so boiled when I thought of the monstrous injustice that I felt as if I were twelve feet high when I thrust it down their throats. That is almost a portrait of Dickens. We can almost see the erect little figure, its face and hair like a flame. For such reasons, among others, Dickens was angry with America. But if America was angry with Dickens, there were also reasons for it. I do not think that the rage against his copyright speeches was, as he supposed, merely national insolence and self-satisfaction. America is a mystery to any good Englishman, but I think Dickens managed somehow to touch it on a queer nerve. There is one thing, at any rate, that must strike all Englishmen who have the good fortune to have American friends. That is, that while there is no materialism so crude or so material as American materialism, there is also no idealism so crude or so ideal as American idealism. America will always affect an Englishman as being soft in the wrong place and hard in the wrong place, coarse exactly where all civilized men are delicate, delicate exactly where all grown-up men are coarse. Some beautiful ideal runs through this people, but it runs aslant. The only existing picture in which the thing I mean has been embodied is in Stevenson's Wrecker, in the blundering delicacy of Jim Pinkerton. America has a new delicacy, a coarse, rank refinement. But there is another way of embodying the idea, and that is to say this, that nothing is more likely than that the Americans thought it very shocking in Dickens, the divine author, to talk about being done out of money. Nothing would be more American than to expect a genius to be too high-toned for trade. It is certain that they deplored his selfishness in the matter. It is probable that they deplored his indelicacy. A beautiful young dreamer with flowing brown hair ought not to be even conscious of his copyrights. For it is quite unjust to say that the Americans worship the dollar. They really do worship intellect, another of the passing superstitions of our time. If America had then this Pinkertonian propriety, this new, raw sensibility, Dickens was the man to rasp it. He was its precise opposite in every way. The decencies he did respect were old-fashioned and fundamental. On top of these, he had that lounging liberty and comfort which can only be had on the basis of very old conventions, like the carelessness of gentlemen and the deliberation of rustics. He had no fancy for being strung up to that taut and quivering ideality demanded by American patriots and public speakers. And there was something else also, connected especially with the question of copyright and his own pecuniary claims. Dickens was not in the least desirous of being thought too high-souled to want his wages, nor was he in the least ashamed of asking for them. Deep in him, whether the modern reader likes the quality or no, was a sense very strong in the old radicals, very strong especially in the old English radical, a sense of personal rights, one's own rights included, as something not merely useful but sacred. He did not think a claim any less just and solemn because it happened to be selfish. He did not divide claims into selfish and unselfish, but into right and wrong. It is significant that when he asked for his money he never asked for it with that shamefaced cynicism, that sort of embarrassed brutality with which the modern man of the world mutters something about business being business or looking after number one. He asked for his money in a valiant and ringing voice, like a man asking for his honour. While his American critics were moaning and sneering at his interested motives as a disqualification, he brandished his interested motives like a banner. 
"'It is nothing to them,' he cries in astonishment, "'that, of all men living, I am the greatest loser by it.' The copyright law. "'It is nothing that I have a claim to speak and be heard.' The thing they set up as a barrier he actually presents as a passport. They think that he of all men ought not to speak because he is interested. He thinks that he of all men ought to speak because he is wronged. But this particular disappointment with America in the matter of the tyranny of its public opinion was not merely the expression of the fact that Dickens was a typical Englishman, that is, a man with a very sharp insistence upon individual freedom, it also worked back ultimately to that larger and vaguer disgust of which I have spoken, the disgust at the perpetual posturing of the people before a mirror. The tyranny was irritating, not so much because of the suffering it inflicted on the minority, but because of the awful glimpses that it gave of the huge and imbecile happiness of the majority. The very vastness of the vain race enraged him, its immensity, its unity, its peace— he was annoyed more with its contentment than with any of its discontents. The thought of that unthinkable mass of millions, every one of them saying that Washington was the greatest man on earth, and that the Queen lived in the Tower of London, rode his riotous fancy like a nightmare. But to the end he retained the outlines of his original republican ideal, and lamented over America not as being too liberal, but as not being liberal enough." Among others, he used these somewhat remarkable words. I tremble for a radical coming here, unless he is a radical on principle, by reason and reflection, and from the sense of right. I fear that if he were anything else, he would return home a Tory. I say no more on that head for two months from this time, save that I do fear that the heaviest blow ever dealt at liberty will be dealt by this country, in the failure of its example on the earth. End quote. We are still waiting to see if that prediction has been fulfilled, but nobody can say that it has been falsified. He went west on the great canals. He went south and touched the region of slavery. He saw America superficially indeed, but as a whole. And the great mass of his experience was certainly pleasant, though he vibrated with anticipatory passion against slaveholders, though he swore he would accept no public tribute in the slave country, a resolve which he broke under the pressure of the politeness of the South, yet his actual collisions with slavery and its upholders were few and brief. In these he bore himself with his accustomed vivacity and fire, but it would be a great mistake to convey the impression that his mental reaction against America was chiefly, or even largely, due to his horror at the Negro problem. Over and above the cant of which we have spoken, the weary rush of words, the chief complaint he made was a complaint against bad manners and on a large view his anti-Americanism would seem to be more founded on spitting than on slavery. When, however, it did happen that the primary morality of man-owning came up for discussion, Dickens displayed an honourable impatience. One man, full of anti-abolitionist ardour, buttonholed him, and bombarded him with the well-known argument in defence of slavery that it was not to the financial interest of a slave-owner to damage or weaken his own slaves. Dickens, in telling the story of this interview, writes as follows. I told him quietly that it was not a man's interest to get drunk, or to steal, or to game, or to indulge in any other vice, but he did indulge in it for all that. That cruelty and the abuse of irresponsible power were two of the bad passions of human nature, 
with the gratification of which considerations of interest or of ruin had nothing whatever to do. End quote. It is hardly possible to doubt that Dickens, in telling the man this, told him something sane and logical and unanswerable. But it is perhaps permissible to doubt whether he told it to him quietly. He returned home in the spring of 1842, and in the later part of the year his American notes appeared, and the cry against him that had begun over copyright swelled into a roar in his rear. Yet, when we read the notes, we can find little offence in them, and, to say truth, less interest than usual. They are no true picture of America, or even of his vision of America, and this for two reasons. First, that he deliberately excluded from them all mention of that copyright question which had really given him his glimpse of how tyrannical a democracy can be. Second, that here he chiefly criticizes America for faults which are not, after all, especially American. For example, he is indignant with the inadequate character of the prisons, and compares them unfavorably with those in England, controlled by Lieutenant Tracy and by Captain Chesterton at Coldbath Fields, two reformers of prison discipline for whom he had a high regard. But it was a mere accident that American jails were inferior to English. There was and is nothing in the American spirit to prevent their effecting all the reforms of Tracy and Chesterton, nothing to prevent their doing anything that money and energy and organization can do. America might have, for all I know does have, a prison system cleaner and more humane and more efficient than any other in the world. And the evil genius of America might still remain. Everything might remain that makes Pogram or Chollop irritating or absurd. And against the evil genius of America, Dickens was now to strike a second and a very different blow. In January 1843, appeared the first number of the novel called Martin Chuzzlewit. The earlier part of the book and the end, which have no connection with America or the American problem, in any case require a passing word. But except for the two gigantic grotesques on each side of the gateway of the tale, Pecksniff and Mrs. Gamp, Martin Chuzzlewit will be chiefly admired for its American excursion. It is a good satire embedded in an indifferent novel. Mrs. Gamp is, indeed, a sumptuous study, laid on in those rich, oily, almost greasy colours that go to make the English comic characters, that make the very diction of Falstaff fat, and quaking with jolly degradation. Pecksniff also is almost perfect, and much too good to be true. The only other thing to be noticed about him is that here, as almost everywhere else in the novels, the best figures are at their best when they have least to do. Dickens's characters are perfect as long as he can keep them out of his stories. Bumble is a divine, until a dark and practical secret is entrusted to him, as if anybody but a lunatic would entrust a secret to Bumble. Micawber is noble when he is doing nothing, but he is quite unconvincing when he is spying on Uriah Heep, for obviously neither Micawber nor anyone else would employ Micawber as a private detective. Similarly, while Pecksniff is the best thing in the story, the story is the worst thing in Pecksniff. His plot against old Martin can only be described by saying that it is as silly as old Martin's plot against him. His fall at the end is one of the rare falls of Dickens. Surely it was not necessary to take Pecksniff so seriously. Pecksniff is a merely laughable character. He is so laughable that he is lovable. Why take such trouble to unmask a man whose mask you have made transparent? Why collect all the characters to witness the exposure of a man in whom none of the characters believe? 
why toil and triumph to have the laugh of a man who was only made to be laughed at? But it is the American part of Martin Chuzzlewit which is our concern, and which is memorable. It has the air of a great satire, but if it is only a great slander it is still great. His serious book on America was merely a squib, perhaps a damp squib. In any case, we all know that America will survive such serious books. But his fantastic book may survive America. It may survive America as the Knights has survived Athens. Martin Chuzzlewit has this quality of great satire, that the critic forgets to ask whether the portrait is true to the original, because the portrait is so much more important than the original. Who cares whether Aristophanes correctly described Cleon, who is dead, when he so perfectly describes the demagogue, who cannot die? Just as little, it may be, will some future age care whether the ancient civilization of the West, the lost cities of New York and St. Louis, were fairly depicted in the colossal monument of Elijah Pogram. For there is much more in the American episodes than their intoxicating absurdity. There is more than humour in the young man who made the speech about the British lion, and said, I taunt that lion, alone I dare him. Or in the other man, who told Martin that when he said that Queen Victoria did not live in the Tower of London, he fell into an error not uncommon among his countrymen. He has his finger on the nerve of an evil which was not only in his enemies, but in himself. The great democrat has hold of one of the dangers of democracy. The great optimist confronts a horrible nightmare of optimism. Above all, the genuine Englishman attacks a sin that is not merely American, but English also. The eternal complacent iteration of patriotic half-truths, the perpetual buttering of oneself all over with the same stale butter, above all, the big defiances of small enemies, or the very urgent challenges to very distant enemies, the cowardice so habitual and unconscious that it wears the plumes of courage, all this is an English temptation as well as an American one. Martin Chuzzlewit may be a caricature of America. America may be a caricature of England, but in the gravest college, in the quietest country house of England, there is the seed of the same essential madness that fills Dickens's book, like an asylum, with brawling chollops and raving Jefferson bricks. That essential madness is the idea that the good patriot is the man who feels at ease about his country. This notion of patriotism was unknown in the little pagan republics where our European patriotism began. It was unknown in the Middle Ages. In the eighteenth century, in the making of modern politics, a patriot meant a discontented man. It was opposed to the word courture, which meant an upholder of present conditions. In all other modern countries, especially in countries like France and Ireland, where real difficulties have been faced, the word patriot means something like a political pessimist. This view and these countries have exaggerations and dangers of their own, but the exaggeration and danger of England is the same as the exaggeration and danger of the Watertoast Gazette. The thing which is rather foolishly called the Anglo-Saxon civilization is at present soaked through with a weak pride. It uses great masses of men, not to procure discussion, but to procure the pleasure of unanimity. It uses masses like bolsters. It uses its organs of public opinion not to warn the public, but to soothe it. It really succeeds not only in ignoring the rest of the world, but actually in forgetting it. 
and when a civilization really forgets the rest of the world, lets it fall as something obviously dim and barbaric, then there is only one adjective for the ultimate fate of that civilization, and that adjective is Chinese. Martin Chuzzlewit's America is a madhouse, but it is a madhouse we are all on the road to. For completeness, and even comfort, are almost the definitions of insanity. The lunatic is the man who lives in a small world, but thinks it is a large one. He is the man who lives in a tenth of the truth, and thinks it is the whole. The madman cannot conceive any cosmos outside a certain tale, or conspiracy, or vision. Hence, the more clearly we see the world divided into Saxons and non-Saxons, into our splendid selves and the rest, the more certain we may be that we are slowly and quietly going mad. The more plain and satisfying our state appears, the more we may know that we are living in an unreal world. For the real world is not satisfying. The more clear become the colours and facts of Anglo-Saxon superiority, the more surely we may know we are in a dream. For the real world is not clear or plain. The real world is full of bracing bewilderments and brutal surprises. Comfort is the blessing and the curse of the English, and of Americans of the pogrom type also. With them it is a loud comfort, a wild comfort, a screaming, capering comfort, but comfort at bottom still. For there is but an inch of difference between the cushioned chamber and the padded cell. End of chapter 6